Hey, hockey fans, welcome to Across the Pond Hockey Talks Volume 54. We are back at Sunset Studio with our probably most infamous and most requested guest, Mr. Terry Whalen, here to break down another fantastic hockey movie for y'all. Terry, what do you got for us tonight? Yeah, Chris, uh, we got a, we got an interesting one. We get we an do. Inter- yeah, an interesting one this evening, and uh, uh, it's called Goalie, uh, part Paper Lion for its literary background, part Hoop Dreams for its indie credibility. The goalie in Goalie is Terry Sawchuk, arguably the greatest of the original six netminders, and therefore a name that must be still be acknowledged when one gets into that never to be answered argument about the goat. What the man put himself, and all those around him, whether family, friend, or foe, threw on his way to hockey immortality was unpleasant. Terry Sawchuk was not a nice man. He was a bad husband and a poor father, an indifferent teammate who treated the press with contempt and fans with an attitude that varied from apathy to disdain. He led a life of personal torment and professional pain, and the movie is mostly successful at showing the life and times of this deeply troubled but ultimately compelling man. Now, Chris, this is just before my time. Sawchuck played 1950 to 1970. Um, so it's somewhat ancient history to you. Mm-hmm. What, what had you heard about Terry Sawchuck before, uh, before you watched the film? Well, basically just all the amazing things that he had accomplished in his career. Um, I had no idea about his backstory or where he came from, the troubled life that he led. Basically, right. I knew that he had probably the most stitches of any goalies in their <laughs> face ever. Um, yeah, and that was it. And I knew he was a, he was a legend, and um, he broke a lot of barriers with uh, when it comes to like being a goalie tandem for for the first time right. and yeah. like things like that. But I I really didn't know a lot about him, and uh, I'll have to say, Terry, it's another one of those sad ones. Uh. Um, and <laughs> but. Also very revealing, and um, and I thought they did a really good job of capturing what he went through with his family life and yeah. how it led to his demise. So. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, uh, again, a couple of things. Um, he's remembered really as the first great angle goalie. Right. Right. You know, he sort of he sort of had that preternatural ability. You know, to follow follow the play, mm-hmm. and um, he played what uh, what they called the sawchuck crouch. So uh, again, that that career, 1950 to 1970, he, you know, that that went from like, uh, you know, the uh, the old time of hockey right through, um, you know, expansion in mm-hmm. in the late 60s, and uh, you can see how the the position, you know, he's he's part of that line of how the goaltending position, how it, uh, you know, it's morphing. So uh, right. what he did in the Sawchuck Crouch. You know, to see around the screens, which were becoming much more common. Mm-hmm. You know, he he just bent over, you know, on his back, but he was still a stand-up guy. But he bent over very low and and was able to peer through. And then, uh, you know, the contemporary his Glenn Hall comes along, yeah, and it evolves a little more because he starts playing in the, in the butterfly, right? Well, thanks to his older brother who taught him those techniques, and also the fact that he was taught to try and predict the shot before, like knowing where the shot was going right. before it came. So that's that's it. Definitely a pioneer. Yep. For sure. So, the movie's based on a book of poems, Terry. That's different. That is, and uh, it's called Nightwork, the Sawchuck Poems by Randall Maggs. It was published in 2008. The filmmakers also cite David Dupuis' 1998 biography, Sawchuck, The Troubles and Triumphs of the World's Greatest Goalie, as source material. By drawing upon both a literary interpretation of Sawchuck's life 
and a just-the-facts-ma'am biographical document, they were able to achieve a unique way of telling a sports, in this case, uh, in this case hockey story. Now, I read both books preparing for this, and we'll get to the great story behind the poet and the, and the director and, and others involved in the, in the making of the movie. Um, but, Chris, the movie begins, like the book of poems, uh, with the autopsy of Terry Sawchuk. And uh, as you mentioned, did you think you were in for, for another movie that was going to make you sad? Every time you recommend a movie to me, I know I'm in for something sad. <laughs> that's not. Well, that's that's not quite true. That's not 100% true, but uh, this is another one of those movies, yeah. It's not that it's sad. It's just that it's real. It's real. And that's a very good point. Yeah, so you do feel sad, but, I mean, you got to realize that it's real. So this is his actual life, and this yeah. is what someone like him went through. So That's that's it. And, and like Spinner Spencer, I mean, like people were, were drawn to the dark side. Always. Yeah. I mean, no one's going to no one's gonna argue, you know, Wayne Gretzky, you know, is, is the greatest player of all. But would right. you really want to watch the biography of Wayne Gretzky? You know, Wayne scores another goal. <laughs> yeah. Wayne exactly. sets another record. Yeah. Wayne saves a puppy from drowning. Right? You know, he's, he's anodyne. Whereas, you know, these guys who struggle, you know, it, it makes, unfortunately, for more compelling. Exactly. That's more compelling. Say, a very compelling story. Yeah. Um, so, Terry, you can hear the poems in there. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a pretty straightforward story. Yeah, you're right, Chris. And uh, uh, again, there's, there's a blend of fact and fiction, but it's a linear narrative. Terrence Gordon Sawchuk was born in Winnipeg in 1929 to parents of Ukrainian descent, hence the lifelong nickname Yuke or Yuki. He idolized his older brother Mitch, who would die of a heart attack at the age of 17 when Terry was 10. This had a predictable, detrimental effect on the family and would be the root of issues that Sawchuk struggled with his entire life. So I really liked how the movie was like a, a history lesson for people like me who barely knew anything about Terry Sawchuk, but, um, and many of the players from that era. But when Sawchuk arrived in, in Detroit, he replaced Harry Lumley. Tell me a little bit about him. Right. Harry Applecheeks Lumley was the youngest goalie ever to play a game in the NHL at 17. Uh, he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1980. In the 1950 playoffs, Lumley led the Red Wings to the Stanley Cup recording three shutouts and a 1.85 goals against average in 14 games. After his performance, Jack Adams traded Lumley to Chicago, and Sawchuk became the new goaltender for the Red Wings. This was a good move by Adams. Sawchuk would backstop the Red Wings to Cups in 1952, 54, and 55. The 1952 Octopus Cup win is shown in the movie. Sawchuk went 8-0 with four goals against and four shutouts in back-to-back sweeps of Toronto and Montreal. Then Adams would turn around and do the same thing to Sawchuk in 1955, trading him to Boston and bringing in Glenn Hall. This was a bad move by Adams, as the Wings would wait 42 years before winning another cup. Another all-time great from that era is Maple Leaf icon Johnny Bauer, uh, a.k.a. the China Wall. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1976. He won four cups with the Leafs, uh, had his number one retired by the team. And uh, in the movie, as an old man reminiscing, he talks about goalies back in the day and one sweater per team. And, and that line was a real eye-opener for me, Chris. Yeah, me too, because it just it goes to show how much these guys had to give, because if they were, you know, not ready to play one night, that sweater's going to someone else. And that was kind of like the, the moral of this story, how he worked through all of that, gave everything he could. Definitely an eye-opener. Six goalies, six sweaters. It's... 
It's do or die every it, single game. Every single game. And we were talking earlier about how, you know, the game has sort of evolved into, uh, you know, playoff hockey and regular season hockey. Much more, uh, there was only one game back then. Exactly. And it was 100% all the time. 100% or, all the time. I'm or you're sure, out. Or you're out. You yeah. Know, yeah. And, and so there were six goalies in the whole league. So the big five were Sawchuck, Bauer, Hall, Gump Worsley, and Jock Plant. So, as you said, the psychological pressure was immense, and the movie shows this very well. All these men knew how tenuous their position was because they had all replaced someone or had been replaced. You played hurt. When a goalie required medical attention, they would bring him into the locker room and stitch him up while the players skated around until he returned. If the goalie couldn't go, and it didn't happen as often as you'd think, and remember Glenn Hall started 502 consecutive games, each arena had a house goalie who could play for either team. Uh, they would wait until he was dressed and play would continue. Teams w- could then bring up a player from their minor league system for the next game. As the 1960s rolled around, it became more common for teams to dress a goalie and keep one in the stands. But it wasn't until the 1965 playoffs that the league made the rule that teams must dress two goalies and have one on the bench in uniform. Sawchuck and Bauer were already platooning that year for the Leafs and became the first co-winners of the Vezin Trophy. It was Bauer's second and Sawchuck's fourth. And, Chris, this was something you guys talked about on the show, uh, you know, the e-bug. Mm. And, and it's evolved, but it hasn't really changed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I didn't know this, but I actually looked this up today. I didn't know that it was 64-65 when they implemented the rule of two goalies on a team. Right. But that was fascinating to me because, you know, like you said, these guys, 502 consecutive games <laughs> with barely any equipment on. Like, I, I don't. A very good point about the equipment. I mean, just substandard would be a polite way yeah, to put exactly. it. So, yeah, exactly. So, and the, the pressure that these guys had on them every single night to perform, I can't even imagine. Um, so, when that change happened, and there's a scene in the movie where uh, Sawchuck and Bauer are chatting in the dressing room, and he plays a prank on them, and, and they yeah. just become buddies. And Yeah. But the, this is just the approach of the coach as well is, was a little bit different than he had ever seen in Detroit. And he's like, you know, we're not going to treat you guys like that right. here. We're going to, you know, try and do what's best for the team. You guys split the games. Right. He's a good fella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that was like, you know, really nice to see because that was the point in the movie where I thought, okay, this is where we're going to start seeing a little bit of the position evolving a little bit, changing that's, a little bit. That's it. And, and like a lot of things, uh, it was TV that really brought around, you know, the change. Because, you know, when it was just television, when it was just Hockey Night in Canada, Canadians were used to, well, the goalie gets hurt. We can watch the guy skate around for 15 minutes. And, I was going to you know, ask you this too. How long would they wait for a guy again, to go get stitched up? How long does it take to put 30 in someone's mouth, pick up his teeth? Was and, there a limit on well, the time? I, I mean, they'd make a call. If he was going to be out, then they'd get the house goalie ready. But right. if not, they'd wait 20, 25 minutes. When it got Can you to, imagine that today? Well, and again, when it, got to, when it got to American television, mm-hmm. this is when, you know, okay, we can't have this. You know, Ed Sullivan starts right. at 8 o'clock. <laughs> right, we can't, we can't. What do you mean the game's still in We're the third period? We're going to have to cut it off mid-third period. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So this, this was one of the things that sort of, uh, you know, led to the, uh, to the codifying of it, led yeah. to, the, to the rule being passed. And a good rule it was. And uh, I mean, the fact that this guy was... Obviously concussed from a really young age. Yeah. Battling through that. It was yeah. hard to watch at times. Aye. So the movie then shows Sawchuck being traded to the Boston Bruins. Yeah. Polly's Boston Bruins. Yeah. 
And things seemed to go wrong for him from there. Yeah. And, uh, well, it brought out unresolved family issues, mm-hmm. and he felt betrayed. Now, Sawchuck, you know, made it easy for Jack Adams to trade him. Glenn Hall was the real deal, though his time in Detroit would be short, and Sawchuck was already behaving erratically. He was getting sloppy drunk, often with members of the Detroit Lions. And just a quick aside here, Chris, the Lions were a dynasty of their own in the 1950s, winning three NFL championships in six years, led by Bobby I Sleep Fast Lane, who, after being traded to Pittsburgh, said the Lions wouldn't win another title for 50 years. It's been 64, say it's been 64 years <laughs> and counting for the, for the Detroit Lions. Yeah. So, and Sawchuck was publicly cheating on his wife, Pat, who he met when she was a waitress at a local golf club owned by her father that Red Wings players uh, frequented. Marcel Pronovo, and what an all-timer he was as a defenseman. Five cups as a player with Detroit and Toronto, three as a scout with New Jersey. It was 53 years between the first time and the last time his name was put on the Stanley Cup. He was Sawchuck's closest friend in hockey, and he said of him, Terry was not good with women, nor was Terry good for women. And, and I don't want to say that the movie lets Sawchuck off easy, because on the whole, this is an honest, warts-and-all look at, uh, at the man. Um, but when it shows him cheating on his wife, that's emblematic, right? That was not a one-off event. You know, when he shows up at home angry, drunk, and looking for a fight, that continued unabated for years. He and his wife would eventually have seven children. Uh, the movie is not a hagiography, but if it was darker it would still be the truth. And it gets back to the fact, Chris, that this game, it's hard on families. Yeah, extremely hard. I mean, even nowadays, even now with all the technology and the flights and the the quicker transitions between cities and blah, 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 it doesn't matter. There's still so much sacrifice. Yeah, Um, pressure. Pressure, family pressure. There's always something going on at home. Yeah. And you never know what's going on in somebody's life behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, so this was, uh, you know, it, it was it wasn't a, a fun thing to see, right? But certainly, uh, you know, it made me understand the the, the man a little bit more and, yeah. and the troubles that he went through. Indeed. Uh, so that trip to Newfoundland did that really happen? <laughs> it did, and uh, and those tours were common in the 1950s for the two teams that did not make the playoffs. It was an opportunity for the players to make uh, some extra cash before the summer break, and it was a grow the game exercise for the league. The 1956 Boston Bruins tour actually began with seven games against the St. John Beavers, held in various locales in New Brunswick, and then games in Corner Brook, Bay Roberts, St. John's, Grand Falls, and Gander against local Newfoundland teams. And, uh, you know, as we saw in the movie, Chris, the games were not normal rules. They were exhibitions. You know, the players played on each other's teams. Maybe the Bruins would have an inter-squad game for a period. Uh, But that game that was uh, shown in the movie, uh, Outdoors, that was, a, that was the game that was on artificial ice in Bay Roberts. It was the second outdoor game featuring an NHL team and the first in Canada. The first outdoor game featuring an, uh, an NHL team was the Detroit Red Wings prison game, where the Wings played an exhibition game against a group of convicts at Marquette Prison in Michigan in February 1954. The goaltender for Detroit that day? Terry Sachuk. Yes. This, this was news to me, Chris. <laughs> well, this is all news to me, Terry. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, again, we're, we're talking the middle of the season, February. Yeah. 
It's very strange, but I mean, the fact that they, you know, we were talking about this when we talked about the outdoor games and how the, the first one was, uh, what, I forget the year, but. Right. Well, th- this was the first this one. This was the actual This was the first actual one. first one. Yeah. yeah. Before they started it up back in the 90s. Yeah. And it's, it's come a long way. They had them in uh, Minnesota and Nashville, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think this year. Yeah. They can do it anywhere now. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, Rain or shine. California or Newfoundland doesn't matter. Well, there you go, and <laughs> uh, and again from uh, from these uh, little ideas, you yep. know, this is uh, this is where it was originally. So yeah, it's it, they've come a long way. They certainly have. Yeah, um, and then Sawchuck went off to Boston and didn't last that long. I he was uh, Terry Sawchuck was the first NHL player to hold a press conference on January twenty first, nineteen fifty seven. He announced his retirement from hockey. Later that day, he would be named first team All Star goalie. Uh, but he was a mess physically, having played through a bout of mononucleosis, and he was mentally and emotionally lost away from family in Detroit. Now, he was savaged in the press. They called him a quitter, intimated that he was soft in the head, which only confirmed his uh, opinion of that profession. Mm-hmm. But if Terry Sawchuck was anything, it was stubborn, and he walked away. Now, the gambit would work. In July, Jack Adams brought Sawchuck back to Detroit uh, for then underachieving, but future Hall of Famer Johnny Busick. His second time around in Detroit would not be as successful, though he would continue to play at a high level, wearing a mask from 1962 on. He would outlast Jack Adams in Detroit, who was fired in 1963 after 36 years as GM. Uh, Jack Adams, again, still the only man to win the Stanley Cup as a player, as a coach, and as a general manager. Sawchuck would be traded to Toronto in 1964, beginning a third act, uh, which would contain a professional triumph and the ultimate personal tragedy. Um, can you think of any others, maybe, Chris, who quit at the top? To be honest, I really can't. Um, right. Uh, it doesn't happen very often in the NHL. But no. I mean, in other sports, I've seen it happen. NFL, I've seen it Jim happen. Jim Brown, in, back yeah. in the day. I've seen it happen in, uh, you know, like UFC or MMA fighting where, right. you know, They've had enough at 30 years old or right, whatever. But yeah. it's not something you really see very often in the NHL. And I mean, just what happened this year when um, Eric Johnson was talking about the fact that he almost retired two years ago from Colorado right. at a young age. Yeah. He, he probably could have walked away from the game. But honestly, I can't think on the top of my head somebody who left at the top, right. uh, like on their own will. Well, you, you saw again the, the, the late great Mike Bossy. Yes. You know, but, but it was injury. Exactly. And, and Pavel Bure, you know, mm-hmm. they were like 30 when they, but that was injury. Yeah. Um, Kenny Dryden, maybe. Okay. Right? Yeah. He, he was, you know, but he was always a different sort, right? And he retired, at, you know, and got his law degree and came back mm-hmm. and then, you know, won a bunch more for the Habs. But, but he walked away with still plenty of tread on the tire. I, I, I wonder if you're going to see maybe in the future it happen yes. a little more often because yep. there's money made now. Yes. And also, people are way more aware of the right. fact that they're not going to be able to rebound from this. Right. Like, you look yeah. at, like, the head injuries, the concussions, exactly. all those things. People are so aware of it now. They know right. that, you know, your quality of life may be over at this point. Right. And, and if you're 32 years old with a few million in the bank. Yeah. But, I mean, it's really hard for a hockey player because it, that's everything it, for them. Uh, well, it's everything and, and again, if you have that attitude, you're not going to get into the position. Exactly. To have made a couple million dollars to have it in the bank. Exactly. Because so, it takes so much to get there. Yeah. To, to walk away from it. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, I'll, I'll never experience that, but I'm sure it would be a really, really hard thing to do. Yeah. So much pride, so much hard work, so much. Yeah. There's so much that's gone into getting you there. Yeah. yeah. Almost like, honestly, I think, I hope 
that people start doing it more. Right. Um, especially when they start to have head injuries and yeah. things like that. But yeah, yeah. I honestly, I don't know anyone who left on top in the no, NHL. You're right. All right. So before we get to the third act, Terry, let's take a look at the people who brought this story to the screen. Yeah, sure, Chris. And, and that starts with the Mags family. Daryl Mags was a guy, a defenseman whose first game was in 1971 with the Blackhawks. He played 135 games with the Hawks and the Golden Seals and the Maple Leafs, and another 400 in the WHA, ending in 1980. His brother Randall Maggs has taught literature and creative writing at Memorial University of Newfoundland since the late 1970s, and in 2008, after 10 years of work, released Nightwork, the Sawchuck Poems, a collection of 74 poems over 189 pages. The dedication to the book reads, To my brother Daryl, who saw it all for himself, and for our mother, who wouldn't look up from her lap whenever he was on the ice. The director of goalie is Adriana Meggs, the poet's daughter, who burst onto the scene when her directorial debut, grown-up movie star, had a showing at the 2009 Sundance Film Festival. She continues to write and direct, recently for a series based on the Hardy Boys books. The other writer of goalie is Jane Meggs, Adriana's sister, who is very active creating the TV series Bellevue, producing, and with an E, and writing Star Trek Picard. To round out the family affair, two of the Sawchuck children are played by Jane's son, Wynn, and daughter, Georgia, and Owen Maggs, son of Adriana, plays the doomed Mitch Sawchuck. Now, that's, that's pretty special, Chris. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> very special, Terry. Very, yeah. very special. Right, yeah. I mean, it's you know, unheard of. It is. It's completely unheard of. Um, so let's jump to who's in front of the camera. Yeah, um, again, the heavy lifting falls to Mark O'Brien as Terry Sawchuck. Uh, he did all the hockey action himself. There was no stunt double there. Uh, he's from St. John's and appeared in Mags' grown-up movie star. He's a busy movie and TV guy, including the new Perry Mason reboot on HBO. His wife is Georgina Riley, a busy actress with credits like Showtime City on the Hill, Canadian staple Murdoch Mysteries, and Goalie, where she plays Pat Morey, wife of Terry Sawchuck. So, see, the chemistry there is real between husband and wife mm -hmm. because they're husband and wife. Uh, a shout-out here to Sean McCann. He plays Red Story, and uh, this is his last credit before his death at 83 in 2019. Now, this guy had roles on King of Kensington, The Littlest Hobo, The Beachcombers, Anna Green Gables, etc., etc. Um, he was also in Miracle. Um, Again, if you watch Canadian television in the last 40 years, you, you would recognize uh, the, the late uh, Sean McCann. Uh, the name in the movie is Kevin Pollack, uh, the usual suspects, a few good men, currently in the marvelous Mrs. Meisel. Uh, he plays NHL legend Trader Jack Adams. Now, I think Pollock nails Adams' genial, bombastic ruthlessness. Uh, he's especially good in the later scene when he's looking back, um, but I prefer Al Waxman's take from net worth. Uh, if only because Waxman looked a lot more like Jack Adams. And, of course, Al Waxman was the king of Kensington. Yeah, and Pollock did a great job. I mean, we talk about this often. It's really hard to be an actor in a hockey movie, especially when you're trying to film old-timey hockey right, like this. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, some of the other guys in the movie, especially Jack Adams, uh, Kevin Pollock, yeah. really great job. Yeah, you do uh, have one name you do want to bring up. I do. I'd like to uh, mention my friend Billy McClellan, uh, who's going to be a guest on the podcast. This is going to be a first, Terry. Yeah, hey, outstanding. The, uh, he's going to be a hockey player on TV, our first 
<laughs> first ever actor hockey yeah. player to be on the podcast and uh billy's from cape breton and he's got a really if you check him out on imdb you'll see how accomplished he is yeah some of the biggest movies that you probably know him from might be uh nobody yep um the silence was one of my faves that he's been in but he's in a whole bunch of cbc movies yeah, and he, yeah. he's actually just won an award for his own movie uh for a short that he made he's doing incredible things uh you, he's been in shows like pretty hard cases uh murdoch mysteries the uh shows that have been on cbc yeah. for the last seven eight years yeah yeah uh, he's doing great things he's a really great guy and i remember talking to him actually about this a few years ago when he told me he was playing the role um, Fern Flamin. Fern Flamin. And <laughs> uh, yeah, what a name, right? Yeah. And then he's in the opening scene, like with the first time Terry plays with uh, with the with the Red Wings, he's the captain of the Bruins who yeah, scores, scores on this yeah, very first exactly, shot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Billy, uh, I remember asking him about it, how difficult it was. I mean, he grew up playing hockey, but to put on those old skates, right. that was the hardest thing. So yeah, he talked to yeah. me a lot about that. And really looking forward to talking to him about this and you know getting a little bit of the behind-the-scenes yeah. look at yeah, how yeah. they actually filmed Indeed. it yeah. and how many takes it took to get those shots yeah. and yeah. those kind of things. Uh, so, good. I, I got a couple of questions for him. That's, uh, that's for sure. I'll, looking uh, forward I'll to I'll forward it. them. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of that, how about the hockey action? Chris, what, what did you think overall? Overall, it's, I don't want to say it was bad, because it's really hard to do what they did, but they didn't actually show too much. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. trying to show too much of that would be, you know, I think it would make it look worse. Right. But the fact that they picked their spots, uh, yeah. focused on, on Sawchuck a lot. They didn't show a lot of like end-to-end -end action or right. any real plays or anything yeah. like that. But you could tell like how difficult it was for those guys to be out there doing what they were doing. And, right. And, you know, because again, they, they went for the realism. Exactly. Right. They went for the realism. And, yeah. and so it's, you know, the game is certainly it was slower back of in the day for your yeah. reasons. Yeah. For many. Um, what about the what about the no name uniforms? Did that did that bother you? No, it didn't bother me. I realized there was, there was no way they were going to get the rights to have all those jerseys. And, you yeah. know, I'm sure there was that would be a, a lot of complications and headaches. Right. But it didn't, well, so you it know, didn't bother me. No. It, again, though, um, Speaking of, uh, remember we watched uh, uh, Sudden Death mm -hmm. with Jean-Claude Van Damme, mm -hmm. yeah, where he murders 37 <laughs> people, where, where he, he puts yeah. the penguin's uh, 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 mascot mm -hmm. through an industrial strength dishwasher. Yeah. And, you know, they had, they had no problem having name, image, and likeness for all that, right? Yeah. You know, so uh, it's probably a, a budget double thing. Standard. It's got to be. Sure. It's got to be a budget thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This is Canadian made, Terry. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and again, for for a film with a small budget, it was around five million dollars. You know, uh, of which they made back around four million, as far I can figure. Uh, the production design is excellent. It it looked good. Um, shot in Sudbury. Shot in Sudbury. Uh, reaction was mixed. Some fans wanted more hockey while uh, some critics found fault with the film for trying to tell uh, too much in too little time. And, you know, while the film might feel a little uneven at times, the fact that they attempted to tell the story in an unconventional way, while still hitting all the biopic beats, it should be applauded. And uh, I will say, you know, by reading both books associated with the project, it increased my enjoyment of it. But if you knew nothing about Terry Sawchuk or hockey, mm -hmm. I think you could still sit down and, and you know, find it an enjoyable perhaps challenging. Uh, right. Yeah. How, how closely related to the books was it? Well, again, uh, you know, if, if you do, 
if you do have a chance to uh, you know read uh, read the the book of poetry, especially, you can see. I mean, this is obviously a labor of love. It's mm-hmm. their father that yeah. they, they that they worked with, and um, you know when you read the poems, you can see how they mixed and matched parts uh, to both drive the narrative. There's a poem called uh, "Tunnel to Windsor," mm-hmm. and you see that action happening in the movie. There's another poem called uh, Two Goies Going Fishing in the Dark." And that's the basis for the whole Newfoundland trip. Mm-hmm. And and they also use the poems to create dialogue. So when Mitch Sawchuck says, uh, stay low, you know, stay low, stay forward, or when Jack Adams is uh, talking about himself, I am a clever dog, mm-hmm. yeah, that's ripped right from the poetry. That's, and yeah. yeah, so they were able to take phrases and, and entire sections and work it into the screenplay. Yeah, well, they certainly did a great job of that. Yeah, so Terry, we know from the autopsy at the start of the film that <laughs> This isn't going to go it's well. It's not going to end well. <laughs> but Sawchuck has one more moment of glory with the Leafs. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And Sawchuck's days in Detroit were numbered. Uh, Roger Crozier was waiting in the wings. Some things never change for goalies. He did record his 95th shutout in January 1964, breaking George Hainsworth's mark set in 1936, before being traded to Toronto. He enjoyed sharing the net with Bauer, and in his third year with the team, the two old goalies, Bauer was 42, Sawchuck 37, they dragged the team to a surprising Stanley Cup win, the team's last. Of course, the movie shows Sawchuck and Luis vanquishing the Habs in Game 6 of the Finals, but his performance against the Chicago Blackhawks in Game 5 of the Semis, that's the game that opens his, uh, his biography. With the game tied at two after the first period, Sawchuck replaced a shaky Johnny Bauer. Facing the likes of Stan Mikita, Bobby Hall, Phil Esposito, he stopped 37 shots over the final two periods to lead the Leafs to a 4-2 win, and he beat the Hawks again in Game 6 to set up a final against Montreal. Chris, Leaf fans should bless themselves when they hear the name Terry Sawchuck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he was so instrumental in that change in, in... in Toronto, it seemed like, you know, maybe he was only there for a short time, but he put his, he really put his, his, his mark on that team. Yeah, indeed. And that was the last of his glory. That, that, that was the last of it, Chris. Uh, again, it, that was uh, the last one before expansion. So in the draft, the Leafs protected Bauer. And uh, Sawchuck, he became an inaugural Los Angeles King. He went 10-17-5 with two shutouts in his only season with the Kings. Now, he enjoyed California, but it was here where his marriage finally fell apart. His wife, Pat, who had been periodically threatening him with divorce since 1958 due to verbal and physical abuse, made it official the next year when Sawchuck returned to Detroit for a final, uninspiring go-round with the team. He went 4-5-3, and three, the only year that he had no shutouts. Now 40 years old, a divorced father of seven, drunk and depressed, when Ranger coach GM Emile the Cat Francis offered Sawchuck a spot, Backing up future Hall of Famer Eddie Jockerman, he took it. He appeared in eight games, got the last of his 103 shutouts versus Pittsburgh in February of 1970, and was dead four months later. Yeah. About that. <laughs> About that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and again, most, most of the guys we referenced from the movie are, were legends. Ron Stewart was a guy. Debuting with the Leafs in 1952, the right winger was a veteran presence on those three-peat Leaf teams of 1961 to 64. He then journeymanned through the expansion years with five different teams. He was an original St. Louis Blue. His career ended on the inaugural Islanders team in 1972. 
It was with the Rangers in 1969-70 that he was Terry Sawchuck's teammate and roommate. The two veterans rented a place on Long Island, and after losing to the Bruins in round one, they spent April 29th drinking and cleaning up for the offseason. The movie accurately depicts what happened next. During a drunken argument over unpaid bills, Sawchuck lunged at Stewart and, in the ensuing scuffle, fell hard on Stewart's knee. Sawchuck would never leave hospital as two surgeries to stop internal bleeding were unsuccessful, and he died May 31st, 1970. How sad is that, Chris? Well, it was very sad. <laughs> I mean, I just kept thinking, he's going to turn it around, he's going to turn it around. I, yeah. I blocked that in my mind that I know I know he passed away in right. 1970, yeah. Yeah. and the opening scene started with the autopsy, but right. you kept rooting for him sure. because you knew deep down this guy just had a... You know, he everything that he he was displaying, all of his you know erratic behaviors, all they're all explainable and all yeah. excusable almost. Yeah. It was like you felt so sorry for him because you just wanted him to turn his life around. He he just seemed like he had a big heart and he was a great guy and he just couldn't get it together. Couldn't. Everything that he did like blew back in his face right. and couldn't get out of his own way. Exactly, and, and it and, was so sad to see because obviously he was the most talented goalie in the world at the time. Well, and and again, just d- dumber than Spinner Spencer's end. <laughs> exactly right. And 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 again, the irony of after all the pucks and all the self abuse. It was drunken horseplay that did him in. And and just a quick, you know, story for listeners here. How tough was Terry Sawchuck? His back muscles were ruined by years of playing in the Sawchuck crouch. When he finally had back surgery in the summer of 1965, doctors removed one disc altogether, fused and cleared another, and found such deterioration that they should, said he should have had the surgery seven years before. And he'd play five more years and win that cup with the Leafs. Now, Chris, you've had back problems or had back problems. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine doing, you know, any of this? No, and they didn't even have like there was nobody <laughs> pumping drugs in them in, the, like, in between periods. Like guys now who are playing through injuries, they don't feel a thing while they're on the right. ice because everything's yeah. numbed up. But uh, yeah. these guys, he was getting stitches in his face without any type of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, well, any over, type of drugs at over, all, or without over, even numbing because he had to go back in the game. Yeah, over four hundred stitches in the face, uh, yeah. and again. Um, one thing the movie shows as well is uh, the man, he had, uh, he had uh, weight issues. He had an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he played as heavy at 230 pounds and as little as 160. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, what we'd recognize today as, you know, depression. Yeah. Uh, you know, alcoholism. Uh, you know, it was just, again, a, a, tragic, a tragic end. Absolutely. And there was some scenes in the movie where there was one scene where him and his wife, Pat, had... He finally opened up to her. Right. Kind of lost it, sobbed and cried. And, yeah. You know, and at that moment, and he said a few things like, you know, you weren't allowed to be weak at my house. Or, yeah. Uh, things like that. And I was just thinking, like, where we're at today right. compared to where we were then. Like, we have to realize this evolution is because of people like him. Right. I mean, Very when, good point. With, like, Carrie Price now taking time off to yeah. go get himself healed. Yeah. And it's, like, commendable. Yes. And, like, people are proud of him for yes. doing that. Weakness is not, you know, a negative thing. It's That's not exactly being right. depressed is not a weakness. And I'm really like happy where we're at. But obviously, this guy didn't have any support. And right. I mean, he only had a couple of friends that seemed to be looking out for him. Right. And you know, yeah, just super sad to see what he went through. I mean, right. And and again, as you said, of its time. So uh, people are always, 
you know, human beings are always going to be the same. They're always going to have the same sort of problems. It mm -hmm. just becomes a matter of how do the institutions, uh, you know, look at it and deal with it. Yeah, good point. So, you know, and, and again, it's slow but steady progress. You yeah. brought, uh, brought up Kerry Price. That was a very good point. Yeah. You know, and again, if this happened today, right, uh, what, what happened, I mean, the actual incident with Sawchuck and Ron Stewart, the drunken, you know, the mm -hmm. drunken brouhaha, you know, the tinfoil hat crowd, you know, they'd have a field day. Right. Yeah, you exactly. know, if, if this happened, right? So, and, and the Rangers kept the incident quiet, unaware, like everyone else, as to the severity of the injury. Sawchuck himself completely forgave Stewart, saying the whole incident was his own fault. A Nassau County grand jury, convened in the wake of Sawchuck's death, exonerated Stewart and ruled the death accidental. The hockey world reacted with shock. Though clearly on the downside of his career, Sawchuck was, at the time of his death, the career leader in games played, minutes played, wins, and shutouts. The three-year waiting period for the Hall of Fame was waived. He was elected in 1971. The Red Wings retired as number one in 1994. Now, Chris, can you tell me a little, uh, little trivia? Who holds uh, those uh, records now for, like, you know, the wins, shutouts as a goalie? You're asking me I'm asking trivia. you. Yeah, sure. You're, you're hot. You got Ian Turnbull last time. Come on. Our listeners know that I'm definitely not great at <laughs> trivia, but I mean, just Marty Brodeur, Martin, obviously yeah. Patrick Waugh. Yeah, um, no, it's, 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 don't don't get ahead of yourself. It's Martin Brodeur. Don't get ahead of yourself. Just one. That's all you need. Yeah, that's all we needed. Now, yeah, and and again, um, it it, uh, it was Brodeur for those uh, uh, all-time records. But now yeah. Sawchuck is still second in shutouts, right? And George Hainsworth actually is is still third. I've got one more trivia question for you. Can you tell me the, the goalie, the active goalie with the most shutouts? Active goalie with the most shutouts. Oh, that's tough. Is it the flower? Mark Andre Fleury, Atta boy. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Mark that one down, Paulie. <laughs> Trivia question. I'm one for two. <laughs> the uh, the thing now, and I won't ask you. I won't ask you how many he has, but uh, Fleury has 71. Yes. So he's still a long way from third. Yeah, he's not going to catch. Uh, no. And and as a matter of fact, uh, Terry Sawchuck is still top five in minutes played, in games played. He's still top ten in wins. And uh, that's 50 years after the man last played right. in the NHL. Uh, one, one other thing. Mm -hmm. I know the game has changed. It's, mm -hmm. it's a different thing. But Terry Sawchuk had five seasons where his goals against average was under two. I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to say to you, I looked back at his stats and because yeah. I thought when he went to the Kings, he was going to have a bad year. Yeah. They didn't win a lot of games. Right. But his, yeah. his goals against average, like <laughs> we're talking like sub three. Yeah. In yeah. this era, and in a time where we thought goalies weren't good. <laughs> right, yes. So, yeah. like, the, the game has gone from really low scoring right. to super high scoring, right. down to low scoring yeah. again, and, and now it's, it's kind of making a, a rise that's back exactly up. exactly right. To be honest, Terry, I didn't... I, did not know that the, the, the numbers were that low back then and yeah. the games were that low scoring. Well, and again, maybe not for everybody, but for Terry Sawchuk. And exactly. again, look at that. Yeah. You, you have a goals against the average under two. He's playing with Detroit. Yeah. And he's, he's got Gordie Howe and Ted Lindsay and Red Kelly out in front of him, Marcel Pronovo, mm -hmm. and they just need two. You know, they know Yuki's going to keep it under two most nights. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was very impressed by that. I had yeah. no idea that the, the scores were so low back then and, and the goals against average. But I guess there's six guys, right? You right. better be yeah. good. You better be good <laughs> or they'll find someone else. Exactly. So 
Let's sum it up, Ted. Yeah. So uh, again, I, Chris, I thought this was a little movie that could. Um, I'd, uh, I'd also recommend to listeners to check out Nightwork, the mm-hmm. volume of poetry. It's a unique look at the man and the game. Terry Sawchuck, Terry Sawchuck brought his work home with him, and he worked in a violent, high-pressured business. It is a testament to his family that they would ultimately forgive their husband, father, and it is a testament to the filmmakers for being able to produce what is, ultimately, a sympathetic and entertaining portrait of a deeply flawed man. And uh, Chris, I think maybe the most uh, appropriate way to end would be with a little piece of the poetry from, uh, from uh, Randall Meggs. Let's hear it. Yeah. So this is from a poem called Different Ways of Telling Time. Part four, Ice Time. The guys arrive as if at random intervals, lay out their gear, lucky shirt, same skate first, same old jokes about my liniment. Jesus, Yuki, lose that shit, why don't you? Roll their eyes and tiptoe by. Check the clock and tape my own stick, thank you. Heel to toe, no wrinkles, tape the ankles. Time to go out and get loose, guys in twos and threes, at home on ice, tucking pucks lazily under the crossbar. Same old talk, someone you gotta slow down, a glance where he's talking it up with his own guys. Here's the house where I live, I can't say no. How and Lindsay's eyes on me, Pronovo, tough as a bag of batteries, slaps my pads. I see myself as I pass in the glass, pick up that look from the other side, a nice pair of knees that edge apart as I go by. I get a whiff of ice, and something in me starts alive. I take a few shots, catch and flick, feeling quick, clank behind me, lucky too. Then back inside, and bedlam now, Adam's flapping, but I don't hear. Holy Mary, don't let me fall on my face tonight. I try to loosen a pad, my shaking hand so bad. Jesus, Jesus. Tommy Ivan shoves in beside me, knowing he needs to settle me down. New cufflinks on. Knocks my stick for luck. I'm nodding, but mother of Christ, I'm dying inside. Can't keep still now. Everybody wants to go. The clatter, the chatter, rockers, talkers. Gotta have this one. Gotta have it, guys. This was where we'd bellow out some raunchy song when we were young, scare the bejesus out of everyone. Nice neighborhood like this, they'd say. Who let the bloody DPs in? Tommy drums a rhythm on my leg. I watch his moving hand, distracted by the veins and lines that make the hand a miracle, an acrobat, a thief. Gotta have it, guys. I brace for the roar at the end of the tunnel. Give me a hand here, Tommy. Tuck that in, that, look, that bloody strap. Then bang the door and Jesus, here we go. Someone shouts those words I love and dread. I hear them all my life. Let the goalie go first. Unreal, Terry. I mean, this movie is, I think everyone should watch this movie because there's so much historical information here and so many things that were, you know, that changed the game of hockey. And they only touched on the fact that the uh, the whole union thing was happening, yeah, the players' yeah. union was happening at right. that time as well. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, this movie is a must-watch for hockey fans because Terry Sawchuk should be remembered. He should be honored for his sacrifices that he gave. He basically gave his life and his body to the game. Yeah, indeed. So, Terry, thank you again. I can't, Always a pleasure. I can't man. thank you enough. Always a pleasure. Uh, so, tell me. What's next? What's Besides next? my interview with Billy, which everyone should wait for. Yeah. Really looking forward to hearing a little bit about the behind-the-scenes yeah. filming of this movie. As am I. And, and Chris, uh, it was uh, while uh, researching this that I got interested in that last, last Leafs Cup. 
Okay. And and actually, uh, again, uh, somewhat sadly, coincidentally, yesterday, uh, Jim Pappen died. Yes. And Jim Pappen, of course, was the last man or the man who scored the, you know, the winning goal the last time the Leafs won the Stanley Cup for that 66-67 Leafs team. So we're going to do right. a deep dive on that 66-67 Leafs team. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, take a look at uh, what, uh, again, it was the changes, right? That was the last cup before uh, before um, expansion. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, the last one that the franchise has won. Um, we can probably see in the roots of that cup the problems that the Leafs had um, going forward through the 70s, the 80s, even into the 90s. Yeah. Uh, I, I have no explanation whatsoever <laughs> for, yeah. for what's been going on since then. Right. But uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at uh, take a look at that. It's a trauma. curse, Terry. It's a curse. Uh, well, well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that. I really look forward to that. Yeah. And, all, and yeah. I, I look forward to the opportunity to just remind Leafs fans how long it's been since they've won the Stanley <laughs> Cup. Any, any chance be, I get. There'll be no schadenfreude here. Not Never. All right. Terry, thanks again, as always. Folks, listen to the next episode of Across the Pond Hockey Talks with Billy McCullen for tonight at Sunset Studio. Thanks, Polly. Thanks, Thanks, Paul. And that's Across the Pond, and that's a wrap. Thank you once again to our amazing sponsors, the China Hockey Group, AccessoryHouseGlobal.com, Wheel Hub Asia, The Big Bite Restaurant, Felix & Co., Psalm Sleep, and Yardley Brothers Craft Brewery. And of course, our head honcho here at Sunset Studio, Mr. Paul McLean. Folks, if you want to reach out, send in a question or a comment to acrossthepondhk.com or find us on social media at acrossthepondhk.